If you have your Bibles with you today, I'd invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 29. We are going to take a look at the end of a famous message, the most famous teaching of Jesus, the, the teaching that we are going to be spending the next few months in together, the Sermon on the Mount. And we are going to begin our study of the Sermon on the Mount by going to the end as we begin. Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 29. Jesus says, Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does, them, does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house. And it fell and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes, the keepers of the law. Matthew ends this depiction of the sermon, his account of the Sermon on the Mount with these words, and the crowds were astonished at Jesus' teaching. This teaching that so astonished the crowds that day was Jesus' famous message, the Sermon on the Mount. It's a message that the early church father, Augustine, once described as a perfect standard of the Christian life. And we're going to be exploring this Sermon on the Mount together over the coming months. The Sermon on the Mount is found in Matthew's chapter 5 through 7. It's only 111 verses in total, but some of the most profound words in all of Scripture. Jesus gave this sermon on the shores of the Sea of Galilee in Capernaum. He went up on the hillside with his disciples, and he sat down in the posture of a rabbi, probably with his legs crossed as his disciples gathered around him. We don't teach that way anymore because if we did, I wouldn't get up. And so, um, but, uh, but Jesus took his disciples up, north, up, up the hillsides near Capernaum. For those of you who are going on our tour to Israel in November, we're going to have a chance to go and see the very site where Jesus preached these famous words. And the Sermon on the Mount conveys to us some of the most well-known teachings of Jesus. Teachings that many of us will be familiar with. Teachings like the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Teachings like the Lord's Prayer come from the Sermon on the Mount. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Teachings like the Beatitudes. Famous words like blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. We're going to look at all of these together in the coming months. But not only do we find some of the most famous teachings of Jesus, we also find in this sermon some of the most radical teachings of Jesus. Teachings like Matthew uh, 5.28, where Jesus says, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Teachings like Matthew 5.44, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Teachings like Matthew 6.24, no one can serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. Very radical teachings that we're going to find here in the Sermon on the Mount. 
But the Sermon on the Mount might best be summarized as Jesus' manifesto of kingdom love. A manifesto of kingdom love. If you recall in the Gospel of John, John 13, verses 34 through 35, Jesus shared with his disciples at the end of his ministry these words, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Friends, when we study the Sermon on the Mount together, we are going to see what this commandment looks like lived out. This commandment in action. Jesus is going to teach us how to live in his ways. How to live his way of love. How to live as Jesus' people. Jesus' message of love here is so radical that it's impacted revolutionaries down through the ages. For revolutionaries of peace like Mohandas Gandhi or Martin Luther King Jr., the Sermon on the Mount was the basis for movements leading to human liberation and reconciliation. For revolutionaries of hate like Friedrich Nietzsche or Adolf Hitler, the Sermon on the Mount was viewed as slave morality, a morality of the weak, a message that needed to be suppressed for the advancement of a master race. Yes, friends, the reality is, whether revered or hated, no one can deny the revolutionary nature of Jesus' manifesto of kingdom love. A manifesto that I am praying will increasingly shape us over the coming weeks and months as we humble ourselves before the teachings of the Master. Today, we're going to take a broad overview look at the Sermon on the Mount. And I want to highlight for us three themes that we're going to see repeatedly over the coming months as we study Matthew 5 through 7 together. The first of these three themes that we're going to see uh, is that in the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to discover a kingdom that appears to be upside down. A kingdom that appears to be upside down. And by upside down, I'm speaking of a kingdom that looks upside down by the world's standards. There's a Christian author and English professor by the name of Virginia Stem Owens. Virginia Stem Owens works at a large secular university down in the south, and one of the uh, assignments that she's given her college students over the years in her literature class has been to read the Sermon on the Mount and then write an essay in response to the teachings of Jesus found in Matthews 5 through 7. It's very interesting, Virginia Stemones, in an article about the responses of her students, she quoted some of the reactions of her students upon reading the Sermon on the Mount. One student wrote, This message is extremely strict and allows for almost no fun without thinking it is a sin. Another student wrote this, The things asked in this sermon are absurd. To look at a woman is adultery? That is the most extreme, stupid, unhuman statement that I've ever heard. Another college student wrote this. I did not like the essay, Sermon on the Mount. It was hard to read and made me feel like I had to be perfect. 
and no one is. Interesting observations, aren't they? What was at the root of these students' criticisms? At the root of their criticisms was the reality that each of these students had been confronted with the ethics and values of the kingdom of God. A way of living that stands in direct confrontation with our worldly interests and motivations. What are the interests and motivations of our world today? Well, friends, all you need to do is take a look at your social media accounts. Go to TikTok, go to Snapchat, go to Pinterest, whatever you, whatever you typically follow. What you're going to see there is that the world's values revolve around things like wealth and popularity and status and sex and leisure and sports and beauty and power. These are the values that our world craves for. These are the values that motivate our world. And again, friends, it's not that any of these things are bad in and of themselves. It's just that they're very bad gods. But our world pursues all of these things looking for meaning and happiness and contentment. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his famous exposition on the Sermon on the Mount, he says this, the non-Christian is absolutely consistent. He says he lives for this world. This, he says, is the only world, and I'm going to get all I can out of it. Now, the Christian starts by saying he is not living for this world. He regards this world as but a way of entry into something vast and eternal and glorious. His whole outlook and ambition is different. He feels, therefore, that he must be living in a different way. This different way is the way of Jesus. And we discover it most clearly in the Sermon on the Mount. Over the coming months, we're going to read through the entire Sermon on the Mount. We're going to study all of these teachings of Jesus found in this incredible message. But the Sermon on the Mount, if you're taking notes this morning, can really be broken down into five primary sections. Here, here, here's a brief outline of what we're going to look at in the coming months together. The Sermon on the Mount begins in Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 12, where Jesus shares the famous teachings known as the Beatitudes. The word Beatitudes simply means blessing. We're going to talk more about these Beatitudes next week as we get into exploring each of them in detail. But in the Beatitudes, Jesus writes this, shares this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Here in these Beatitudes, we find Jesus' description of the essential character of of the follower of Christ. These are the characteristics that would be evident in the life of all who have humbled themselves before the master. The Sermon on the Mount continues then in Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16, where Jesus shares with us the Christian's missional calling. 
Here in this section, Jesus shares with us, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus continues in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 48, where we find Jesus' teachings on the Christian and the law. And here in this, of maybe some of the most radical teachings of Jesus, here in this section, Jesus describes how we as his people are to live under the spirit of the law versus the letter of the law. In other words, what Jesus does in this section is he elevates God's intention for the law beyond our limited, finite human understanding of it. He says it's not just about the letter of the law, but there's a deeper intent, a spirit of the law. And in these verses, we're going to find six times, six times Jesus is going to share the words, you have heard that it was said. You have heard that it was said. And what he's referring there to is the law of Moses and the the scribes and the Pharisees, the experts of the Old Testament Jewish law. You have heard that it was said, the teachers of the law say this, but I say to you, and Jesus goes on and he shares an elevation of God's law in the areas of anger and lust and divorce and oath-keeping and retaliation and love for our enemies. And you better believe it, friends, Jesus is going to challenge us greatly in these areas. The Sermon on the Mount continues in Matthew chapter 6 where Jesus gives us the Christian's relationship to the Father a relationship of dependence and submission. And here in this section, Jesus conveys to us the spiritual disciplines that help us grow in our walk with the Lord. He he teaches us on things like giving and prayer and fasting. This is the section where we find the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. This is the section where Jesus speaks on our proper attitude towards money in this world. Teachings like store up treasures, not here on earth, but store up treasures in heaven. And again, Jesus is going to challenge us in these areas. And then the fifth section of the Sermon on the Mount is found in Matthew chapter 7. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus shares with us the Christian's appropriate fear of God. And by fear, we're speaking of our reverence of God. Our our recognition that God is holy, that he is righteous, that he is a just judge, and that we will be held accountable to him. We read verses like Matthew 7, 1, judge not that you not be not judged. Matthew 7, 13 through 14, enter by the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. Teachings like Matthew 7, 21, Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. 
and teachings like Matthew 7, 24, where Jesus says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Again, friends, challenging, confronting words by our master. And as we study the Sermon on the Mount, what we're going to find is that in each of these five sections, Jesus turns the wisdom of the world on its head. And what we discover is that it's really the world's wisdom that is upside down in light of God's will for men and women. Jesus calls us here in the Sermon on the Mount to a whole new way of living. But right off the bat here this morning, even without having delved into this sermon in great detail, some of you hearing some of these words already might be thinking to yourself, but Jason, is this way of life even possible? I mean, is it even realistic to try to live in the way of Jesus? Is it truly attainable? And to that, I say, yes, friends. It absolutely is. But not by our power and not by our own efforts. And this leads me to the second major theme that we're going to see throughout our study in the Sermon on the Mount. In the Sermon on the Mount, we are going to discover a spirituality that works from the inside out. A spirituality that works from the inside out. See, here we find one of the most revolutionary teachings of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus' revelation that religion and works of righteousness are futile means of gaining entrance to God's kingdom. A few weeks ago, I did a podcast with a friend of mine who uh, wanted to interview me on, on apologetics. And if you're not familiar with that term, apologetics is simply giving a defense of our faith, why we believe what we believe as Christians. One of the questions my friend asked me in this interview was, what's the difference between religion and Christianity? I shared with her this story. I was, uh, a couple summers ago, I was out in my front yard doing some yard work, and I saw a white minivan pull up on my street, and out of this minivan came a group of well-dressed individuals, and quickly I realized this was a group of Jehovah's Witnesses, and they were about to go door-to-door witnessing throughout my neighborhood. Jehovah's Witnesses, if you're not aware of this, the average Jehovah's Witness will spend 8 to 10 hours a week in door-to-door witnessing. Why do they do that? They do that because they need to prove their worthiness to Jehovah God in order to have any hope of entering paradise one day. And so they go door-to-door witnessing, and they made their way to my, my, uh, down my sidewalk, down to the end of my driveway, and I went out and I greeted them and introduced myself. We started chatting. In the course of our conversation, I I asked them, uh, I I, I raised an interesting scenario. I said, you know, here we are on the edge of my driveway. We're standing on the edge of the street. What if as we are standing here, all of a sudden a car comes racing down the road and veers off and slams into me, and I go hurling down in the street, and I'm laying in the middle of our street, and I am bleeding to death. I am dying I said to these Jehovah's Witnesses, what do I need to do to be saved? You know, I don't know what their answer was. They looked at me and they said, well, there's lots. I said, lots? I'm in the middle of the road. I'm bleeding to death. I'm dying. What do I need to do to be saved? 
And I kid you not, they just hung their head and they said, there's lots. See, friends, that's the answer of every religion in the world. What do I need to do to be saved? What do I need to do to have a right relationship with God? What do I need to do to attain paradise or heaven? And religion says, there's lots. There's more prayers, and there's more services, and there's more giving, and there's more uh, pilgrimages, and it goes on and on and on, trying to earn the way into God's good graces. That's what religion is all about. Religion is about what we as men and women do to try and please God. But Jesus tells us that there's a significant problem with this approach. As Jesus shows us in the Sermon on the Mount, God is holy, and his standard for entrance into his kingdom is perfect righteousness. You can do all the lots you want to try to do, but all the lots you try to do are never going to be good enough by Jesus' standards to enter God's kingdom. Look what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Who were the scribes and Pharisees? Friends, these were the most religious people in the history of the world. The Pharisees, by the time they were teenagers, would have memorized the entire Old Testament. The Pharisees prided themselves on keeping all 613 laws of the Old Testament. They were so concerned with following the law to the letter of the law that they created laws for the laws. They created, they, no king, they created laws to make sure they wouldn't even get close to breaking any of God's laws. And they were the super religious of Jesus' day. And Jesus says, look it, if you want to get into heaven, your righteousness, your good works, your efforts, your merit needs to exceed, exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. Now you think to yourself, well, who then can enter the kingdom of God? Well, friends, here's where the astonishing message of Jesus makes all the difference. Jesus goes on in the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. We're going to look at this in more detail next week. But Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Who can enter the kingdom of God? The poor in spirit. Those who are so desperate, who have nothing to offer God but to fall upon his amazing grace and say to the Lord, I bring nothing. I have nothing. As I stand in your holy and righteous presence, there is nothing about me that deserves any business in your presence, Lord. And all I can do is fall upon your amazing grace. And Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's this posture before God that not only provides entrance into his kingdom, but as Max Lucado describes it in his great book, The Applause of Heaven, this posture leads to a radical reconstruction of our hearts, transforming us into Jesus' people, empowered by the Holy Spirit to live the message of the Sermon on the Mount. 
Max Lucado describes it like this. He says, observe the sequence. First, we recognize we are in need. We're poor in spirit. Next, we repent of our self-sufficiency. We mourn. We quit calling the shots and we surrender control to God. We're meek. So grateful are we for his presence that we yearn for more of him. We hunger and thirst. As we grow closer to him, we become more like him. We forgive others. We're merciful. We change our outlook. We're pure in heart. We love others. We're peacemakers. We endure injustice. We're persecuted. It's no casual shift of attitude. It's a demolition of the old structure and a creation of the new. You see, friends, this is true spirituality. This is the spirituality of the kingdom of God. It's a spirituality that works from the inside out. It's a transformation of the heart. And this isn't about religion whatsoever. If you came to church this morning looking for religion, you're in the wrong place. Because the way of Jesus has nothing to do with religion. The way of Jesus is about the beggarly poor falling at the foot of the cross and saying, Jesus, I have no hope but you. And Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And in that posture, Jesus begins to transform us from the inside out. And it's all a gift of his amazing grace. The third major theme that we're going to see together as we study the Sermon on the Mount is a lifestyle that puts the kingdom right side up. One of the great teachings of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is found in Matthew 6.33, where Jesus says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. We're going to see in the coming months as we get to this passage, the, the context of this passage and this promise of Jesus. The context is in the context of Jesus teaching about anxiety and worry and, and God, how am I going to provide for my needs and where am I going to get food and where am I going to get clothing and how am I going to sustain myself? And Jesus says, number one, seek first the kingdom of God and then all these things will be added unto you. Friends, this isn't a promise of health, wealth, and prosperity. This isn't a promise that when we put Jesus first, we're never going to be sick, and we're always going to ultimately turn, turn into millionaires. That's not what this is about. This is a promise of blessedness. This is a promise of what we're going to study more in the coming weeks when we look at those beatitudes, those blessings. This is a promise that those who honor God first and foremost will experience the smile of God upon their lives. That's one of the interpretations of that word blessed in the Beatitudes. It's to have the favor of God or the smile of God. It's to know God's unmerited grace in your life. Max Lucado describes it as the applause of heaven is with you. Isn't that awesome to think about? When we humble ourselves before God, he smiles upon us. And it begins, friends, when we keep our lives ordered with the kingdom right side up. I often use this illustration with Christians that there is a pyramid of priorities in our lives that the Bible speaks of. And in Matthew 6.33, when Jesus says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these things are added unto you, Jesus is talking about making sure that our lives are ordered in the right way. 
See, Jesus wants us to put him and his kingdom values first and foremost in our lives. It is the pinnacle. It is the focal point of our lives. The kingdom comes first. And then after the kingdom comes family and our homes and then our church and our ministry and service to the kingdom. And then it's our work and our business. And then it's all the other stuff. Our cars and our toys and our boats and our football games on Sunday afternoons. Like all of that comes last. But Jesus says the kingdom comes first. And when we put the kingdom first, friends, that's when we experience the smile of God and true blessing, true contentment, true joy. Seek first the kingdom of God. It's about a lifestyle that keeps the kingdom right side up, not upside down. And what's so interesting to me is so many of the problems that we experience in our lives happen when we turn the kingdom upside down and fail to keep it right side up. We start putting our cars and our homes and our kids and our sports, we start getting that pyramid all out of order. And when that pyramid gets out of order, everything in our life becomes disordered. Because Jesus is number one. And when we seek him first, we will experience the blessing and favor of God. One of the primary ways that we're going to see Jesus challenge us throughout the Sermon on the Mount will be in his call for us to keep the kingdom right side up in our lives. And I need to be honest with you, friends, there might be times when this is going to be painful. There's going to be times as we read through the Sermon on the Mount, it will feel as if God is doing spiritual surgery on your heart. I'm just being honest with that warning right, right up, up off the front because it's going to challenge us. In fact, back in June when I was doing my sermon prep for this coming year and asking the Lord, what should we be what should we be studying this next year? God put the Sermon on the Mount in my heart, and I started reading through the Sermon on the Mount, and I started trying to talk myself out of it. <laughs> because you start reading through the Sermon on the Mount, and you quickly realize just how far short we fall and how we truly are poor in spirit when we understand what Jesus is calling us to. I read a commentator this past week studying the Sermon on the Mount, uh, a guy by the name of Scott McKnight, his commentary on Matthew 5 through 7. He says, I find myself reading the Sermon on the Mount, and as I begin reading, I'm, I'm nodding my head at the teachings of Jesus, nodding along in approval. But the more I read, I quickly realize I'm not nodding anymore. And that's sort of what we're going to experience. Jesus is going to confront us, and he's going to challenge us. But friends, as the Lord does these works in our hearts, these works of grace, these are good because he is transforming us more and more into his image. And that is always a good thing. And so as I close this morning and as we prepare to take communion together, I want us to turn to the Lord in prayer. And let's humbly ask him to do his work in our hearts over the coming months his work in our hearts and in our lives so that we as a church might increasingly be known as Jesus' people. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for the privilege we have of studying your word. And Lord, I, I am praying over the coming months as we study the master's teachings here in the Sermon on the Mount 
that you might use these words in a powerful way in each of our lives, that you might challenge us where we need challenging, that you might convict us where we need convicting, that we might see a fresh vision of who you are as our Heavenly Father, that we might be inspired to live more faithfully in light of kingdom values and kingdom priorities. And that in all of this, we might humbly bow at the foot of the cross with a recognition and an acknowledgement that unless we come poor in spirit, we have no hope. That it's all by your amazing grace and the work of your spirit that we can live as Jesus' people. And so, Jesus, we acknowledge today even our desperate need for you. And we pray, God, that you would begin to already be at work molding and shaping us more and more into your image, that this teaching of the Sermon on the Mount might conform us more and more into the people you desire us to be, that even people in our lives and in our neighborhoods and at our workplaces and in our schools might see us and say, here truly are Jesus' people. Lord, do that work in our lives. We thank you for your amazing grace. Amen.